Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Behind the Sermon, a time when pastors sit down and talk about all things preaching and practical ministry. My name is Todd Lovell, and I am back in the saddle once again. I hope that's okay with you, dear listener. I am joined uh, by Pastor Andrew Thompson. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Todd. How are you, sir? The prodigal son has returned. Mm, That's right. I was sowing my wild oats. I was casting my pearls before swine. I was. Weren't you mostly just running a fever? I was just running a fever. I had the flu last week, but it's good to be back. Also joined uh, by Patrick Hall, our producer. Hey, Patrick. Hello, Pastor Todd. Uh, on this episode of Behind the Sermon, we're going to talk a little bit about our ongoing sermon series, but we are also going to talk about a couple of uh, documents that have come out this past week uh, for our first church family and also our Grow First discipleship ministry that starts up tonight. So come along with us as we go Behind the Sermon. So I uh, am excited to be back, uh, Andrew. Not not only com- coming back from being sick, but I just I feel like it's been a really long time since I've podcasted, and so um, we're kind of over the Advent slash Christmas hump, and we are back. Uh, ready to kick off Grow First again, right? Absolutely. I feel like we just finished. I know. And here it is to start a new one. So That's right. Um, I am taking a step back on my study uh, and actually doing... Last last semester, I did Paul Behaving Badly, which is a book, and it's a really good book, but it wasn't designed to be a study, so I had to do a lot of work to make it into mm-hmm. like a session study for a class. Uh, that ended up being a lot more work than I probably needed it to be. And mm. so this week I'm going to, or not this week, this semester, I'm going to, uh, try to take the, the foot off the gas a little bit on that. And we're just going to do it just a straight up, almost like a devotional reading study. Um, Seedbed has these one book studies, which mm-hmm. have little, man, they're, if they're a page at all, they're little daily readings and we're going through the book of Hebrews. Um, good. And so I'm excited about that. At the end of every week, it has kind of a, a session layout if you want to actually do a, a group session. So that will take a little bit of the pressure off and a little bit of the, the the forethought work and really just allow me to focus in on the text and hopefully hopefully allow people to focus in on the text too. But uh, I'm excited about getting into Hebrews. Um, it's a really great book and um, has a lot to teach us, I think. And I, maybe, except for maybe a a few key phrases that wind up on bumper stickers or memes. It's probably an often neglected book. I Mm -hmm. would think as far as like the overall trajectory of Hebrews, I don't think a lot of people really understand um, some of the priestly imagery and the old Testament imagery that's used in Hebrews, but it's very, very interesting once you get into it. And I'm excited about that. You're doing something a little different, not different for you, but different for here at First Church. Mm-hmm. But I read yours, your your title of your class, and it made me feel like I was back in seminary. Yeah, like I was registering for a seminary class. So, so tell the people what you'll be working on this semester. Well, the, when we conceived of Grow First, we conceived of it mostly as as a Bible study option, right. and it's a it's our for those of you who don't know what Grow First is, it's our Wednesday evening program that lasts from five thirty to seven thirty, where we gather together for a fellowship meal, and then we break apart for. Um, age-specific activities. Mm-hmm. So there's things everywhere, everywhere from nursery to elementary school age to high school up to adult Bible studies. And to me, it's really important because it gives the opportunity for the church to gather together as the church in a midweek format, um, not so much to worship as to study. 
Right. Um, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, and it's something that the church needs to be doing is digging deeply into the word. Mm-hmm. We here at first church, we talk about gathering, growing and going. And so the grow first on Wednesday is probably, I would say our primary opportunity to do that on a weekend week out basis. It's kind of the hub. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and, and we've pretty much taught Bible studies. So yeah. we've either taught Bible studies that have been book specific, like the one that you're doing on Hebrews, or we've taught Bible studies that are thematically specific, mm-hmm. like last you mentioned the, the, Paul, like study, you did the yeah. Paul study, where you focused on the person and the theology and the witness of the Apostle Paul. So um, I have tended to focus on books of the Bible. I taught Galatians one time. I've taught Ruth. I've taught, taught an Old Testament survey one time, things like that. Uh, Luke and Acts this past year. Um, but one of the things that I have had suggested to me by uh, especially a lot of the, the, the folks in the congregation who come and take re- studies from me repeatedly, right. so they're in there from semester to semester. They're your grow um, groupies. The grow groupies. <laughs> yes. That's right, yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they know a little bit about my background teaching um, in a seminary context, and specifically that I taught Methodist history and Wesleyan theology. Mm-hmm. And they have asked me as, as, as somebody who used to teach that stuff in a seminary setting, if I would be willing to adapt it for a local church context. And, and I've thought, you know, that'd be a great thing to do. Um, I, I, I've put it off and put it off because there's so much of the Bible that I want to teach. Right. And, but I've thought, you know, I, I really need to do that. Um, learning about our own spiritual heritage is important. Yeah. And, and also, you know what else is important is learning about how Wesley himself read the scripture. Hmm. So whenever I would teach Wesleyan theology or or early Methodist history, teach the history of the revival, the evangelical revival in the 1700s, you know, when I would, I would start out with my seminary students, I would say, you know, every seminary student ought to ask the question of every class that he or she walks into uh, that is not a Bible class, why am I taking this class? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, the most important thing for anyone to do who's moving into pastoral ministry is to to be conversant in the Word. You need to know the Bible. You need to know. You need to understand the Bible. You need to understand how doctrine uh, is formulated out of scriptural teaching. You need to be able to teach the Bible. You need to be able to help others understand the Bible. It should be the basis for your preaching. And so, in all those ways, um, the study of the Old and New Testaments is the most important thing that you can study in preparation as a pastor. But what you find, Todd, as you know, having been to seminary, mm-hmm. is that the seminary curriculum involves a lot of things other than Bible classes. Mm-hmm. You take preaching classes, you take pastoral care classes, you take classes in Christian ethics, you take classes in church history, you take classes in Christian theology, you might even take classes in the polity of your tradition, you might take a class in church administration or in evangelism. Languages. Like yeah. in, in languages. And so what I would always say to my students as a church historian, not a biblical studies professor, as a church historian, I would say, you should ask yourself the question, why am I in a history class and not a Bible class this semester? Yeah. And the best answer as a church historian that I could give is that the figures of the tradition, whether they be John Wesley or Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or whomever, that the figures of the tradition are like icons for us. They are windows through which we are enabled to read the word of God better. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, because the ones that we tend to study are the ones whose lives and whose writings and whose ministry and whose witness made such an impact that they are considered 
the kind of saints of the tradition. I don't mean big S saints. I mean, I mean the little S mm-hmm. saints of the tradition. The hagios, yep. Yeah. There are, there are all kinds of minor <clears throat> figures in church history that we really don't read. And, and it's because their life and witness simply didn't make the kind of impact of someone like a, an Athanasius of Alexandria or a, uh, or a John Wesley or a Martin Luther or a John mm-hmm. Calvin or, or, or somebody like that. So what, what John Wesley enables us to do is to get insight into the mind of Christ. Right. And that has to do with how he himself was anointed by the Holy Spirit for leadership and ministry. It has to do with the way that he went about biblical interpretation. It has to do with the lasting impact over the course of subsequent church history. That's why I think stuff like that is important. And so I would say that that's the case not only in a seminary setting, but yes, it's also the case in a local church setting. It's not a bad thing. If you would normally be doing a Bible study, it's not a bad thing to take that amount of time and energy in a given set of time, like for us, from January until May. It's not a bad thing to take that and to devote it to the study of church history, the Christian tradition, or in this case, specifically the history of the Wesleyan revival, the life of John Wesley, and how John Wesley himself taught scripture. And so that's what we're going to be doing. Um, I, I don't think that I'm going to have quite as many people taking it as I, <laughs> I, as I normally would. You'd with, be surprised. Yeah. So, but, but I do think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And since I have taught this in... Uh, formal classroom settings a lot, but I've never taught it in um, in a in a church setting, or at least I haven't taught it since the very beginning of my ministry in a church setting. Um, then I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I think that's one of the the things I remember. We, we've had conversations about this since we've been here together. Um, that was one of the things you were really conscious of coming in. Was that you knew your history mm-hmm. and your training and your experience, and people here knew your history, training, and experience. But you didn't want to be one of those pastors that was talking about the history of John Wesley every single week. Yeah, like you really wanted to kind of—I won't say distance yourself from it—but you wanted to you wanted to play that card sparingly. That's right. Um, I did say that to you. Yeah, and, and that, that might be surprising to some people given the yeah. frequency with which I bring up Wesleyan sermons. Because well, you don't you don't for what it's worth you don't nearly as much as some Methodist pastors that I know. Oh, really? You know what I mean? And so I think people. What I'm saying is I think people expected that from you, mm-hmm. and then you kind of were just like, well, let's just focus on the Bible. Yeah. And But they're like, oh, but what about – we know that John Wesley's your wheelhouse, so mm-hmm. let's hear you talk about that. Yeah. You know, so. Well, if, if you feel like I do it sparingly, well, then I, that's probably mission accomplished on my part. Because yeah, I, I think so. I, um, when I'm thinking about sermon illustrations, particularly if I'm thinking about illustrations that are more – that have more oomph to them or more punch as opposed to kind of – examples from everyday life. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of illustrations are important right. to help you get a, a an angle on the message you're trying to teach. But when I'm thinking about those that have more theological umph, it is Wesley that I naturally go to because right. that's who I know the best. And and so I do bring Wesley up from time to time, but but I have always tried to keep a fairly tight leash on that so it so people never mistake what I'm actually preaching. I want people to know that I am preaching the word of God. I'm preaching scripture. I'm not preaching church history. I'm not preaching John Wesley. And this might be a Methodist thing. It might be a mainline thing. I'm not sure. But it's interesting to me how characterizations, mischaracterizations, caricatures of John Wesley actually inform Methodist poor readings of scripture. Yeah. So there's there's yeah. there's like the John Wesley that people 
wished existed, <laughs> you know, like in their minds, who was all about loving tolerance and all about um, empowering everybody around him um, and all, all about taking down the, the hierarchy and taking down authority. And then there's the John Wesley who actually lived, who mm-hmm. wasn't really about hardly any of that, right? Yeah. But, and, but Oh, he was about love, but he was not about well, the yeah. kind of laissez-faire, yeah. anything goes love. I mean, right. it, it's... I sometimes think about that with reference to the the that that Methodist slogan, "Open hearts, open minds, open doors." Yeah, and it's like, does Wesley believe that? Well, he did, but he also believed in "Don't let the door hit your rear end on the way out." <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, he literally issued class yeah. tickets, and it, you had to fulfill the obligations of your class meeting in order to have your class ticket renewed every three months, yeah. it was quarterly. And if you didn't, well, then your ticket would get yanked, and you would be. It, it wasn't an excommunication because it wasn't the church. It was no, a movement, but yeah. Wesley's attitude with it is: this is a this is a movement that we're, we're doing a thing that's very intentional. There's a seriousness here. to it. Yeah. There's a seriousness to it, and it's okay. You can still go to church. You can still receive Holy Communion. You can you can still live as a Christian. But if you don't want to buy into what we're doing, well, then we don't want you here because one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. Right. And if we don't if we don't embrace that kind of seriousness and discipline of the Christian life, well, then all of a sudden, you know, we're going to, the standards are going to fall apart. And he would see that he would go around from society to society in the towns and villages and cities around England. And when discipline had been lax, he would show up and he would say, look, this is a mess. We got to do some house cleaning. Right. And there are examples of him expelling people for things that we would, that would be shocking to our conscience. You know, there was one story about Newcastle where he expelled people for things like what he called in his journal lightness and carelessness. Hmm. It's like, well, I wouldn't last very long in, in yeah, that, right. <laughs> you know, cause I can be pretty light and careless sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, that's absolutely the case. I was, I was having a conversation earlier today with uh, Kevin Watson, who's a, who teaches this stuff at Candler, uh-huh, Candler uh-huh. school of theology at Emory. Um, we weren't specifically talking about, Wesley, but what you were uh, referring to makes me think about him because he has a uh, he has a blog called Vital Piety, right. which is a um, a Charles part of a Charles Wesley phrase: "Unite the two, so long disjoined knowledge and vital piety." So that's the title of Kevin's website. I'd encourage you to read it. Kevin writes really, really good stuff. Yeah, he does. Uh, a few years ago, he wrote a series of blog posts called, called "Wesley Didn't Say That." Hmm. So the thing that you're talking about, how Wesley gets. Um, he gets used, but he also gets misused and abused. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wesley is like a shibboleth. He's like a Wesley. People actually proof text him. Oh, wow. and so yeah. they'll, they'll take things that he says and they'll, they'll take them out of context and use them as, as a way to argue for whatever they think. Right. right? It's like a form of eisegesis. It's taking, uh-huh. taking something you already believe and then stacking a deck of evidence to support that yeah, regardless yeah. of whether or not in its own context, it actually supports it. So Wesley, or, or uh, sorry, Kevin has this series of posts called Wesley didn't say that. And he would take phrases that are often attributed to Wesley and he would demonstrate that there is no recorded evidence of Wesley ever having said that. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Yeah. One of them is do all the good you can to all the people you can for as long as ever you can or yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever. By all um, the means, you by can. all the means you can. Yeah. Okay. I have literally seen that on a paperweight in a Cokesbury bookstore yeah. attributed to John Wesley. Yeah. Well, there, there, that, that's what Kevin would call it's Wesley ish. It sounds like it's something in the tradition Wesley of Wesley should have said, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but there's no recorded 
evidence of right. him having said that. And that this goes like Dick Heisenrader, the guy under whom I wrote my dissertation, had an article that he published in Circuit Rider magazine uh, one time called Twice Told Tales, yeah, which yeah. is you may have read that. Yeah, before. we read that in school. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's examples yeah. of things that people think Wesley said and that they wish he would have said, but that they never said. And they've gotten repeated so many times. Right. It's like the story of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. It never happened. It's apocryphal, right. but people, but, but it's important to people. So Kevin would write these articles and, and if you can actually look these up on, on, in the comments section of his articles, oh, people I are bet. outraged. I bet. They're outraged that he would be pulling back the curtain on this. And, and there are even examples of people saying stuff like, you can't prove that he never said it. <laughs> so they're saying this to a trained <laughs> academic historian whose specialty yeah. is the life and thought of John Wesley. They really don't know what they're talking about, but yeah. they're saying you can't prove that he never said that. Well, maybe he like, was well, lying on his bed one night and just mumbled it under his breath. You right. can't prove that you he can't didn't prove do that. that he didn't do it. It's like okay, that's fine, <laughs> that's fine. Well, 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 prove that um, Thomas Jefferson never said you know winged elephants should rule the United States. Like, right. Prove he never said that. You cannot. You yeah. cannot prove a negative. I right, mean, that, right. that's not the way historians work. You right. can't. You can't prove the absence of evidence because right. that's it is the absence of evidence that's right. what it is and so pe- people don't like stuff like that but it, but it's it's actually it has to do with how we're trained to read things and that's true of history yeah. it's also true of the bible we you need to read things in context yeah. if you want to actually understand what's being said and what's meant to have been taught i mean even things that he did say that we have records of him saying still get taken way out of context yeah um you know the things about social holiness, yeah, and how that has been conflated with social justice or right. social social gospel movements. When really, what Wesley's talking about that is he's he's putting against each other the solitude holiness mm-hmm. that you can be you somehow can become holy by yourself, right, without a community around you, or social holiness where you actually need. Socializ- socialization right. you actually need to be around other people to become holy right so he had no he had no intentions of that being social justice or social gospel or any of that stuff no. as we as it became it's anachronistic to think so right yeah. um yeah social holiness is about what wesley calls christian conference right. um he even uses the word fellowship in a very different way in which we use the word fellowship he means it to have real umph and that has to do with what he calls in the general rules it's either the general rules or the um, plain account of the people called Methodists, but he talks about uh, watching over one another in love. Right. So for him, watching over one another in love is what happens when Christians of one heart and mind get together and they, they mutually confess their sins and they pray together and they testify to each other and they experience sanctification because they are pushing each other towards what he f- refers to as holiness of heart and life. Yeah. That is social holiness. It's the holiness of a society. Yeah. When you use the word society in the specific Methodist meaning of right. that, which is a, a, like a congregational term. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to understand what Wesley meant by social holiness, look at societies and class meetings and band meetings. Right. That's what he was right. talking about. Uh, yeah, that's not to suggest that social justice is a bad thing. And this, no, no, no. This is where, and I actually, in this specific topic, would I have written about that and, and used to teach it in my classes. It's like don't conflate the two because they both have a lot of importance. We want there to be just and righteous relationships in society writ large. That's what social yeah. justice is. But we also want there to be 
a, a true holy love that obtains in the lives of men and women who are living in intentional Christian settings. Right. That's what social holiness is. So they're, they are both important terms, that, that, and there's a case to be made for each one. It's just that they're not the same term. Well, and Wesley speaks plenty about works of mercy. He does. But you don't right. have to co-opt a phrase that he used meaning something else to mean something now yeah you know what i mean like you don't right. have to misuse the phrase what, what was it is am i making this up the or this might also be apocryphal but the whole think and let think line was that in reference to george george whitfield yeah well I, he says i mean he says it at different times throughout his life but he says but in matters which do not touch the heart of i can't i'll, I'll get the quote wrong but it's like in matters which do not touch the very heart of our right. Christian understandings we think and let think. Right. And there's the phrase that he it's a quote from the Old Testament where he says if if thine heart is as mine then give me thy hand. And yeah. and, and he so Wesley does use those. Today those get reread as a form of laissez-faire Christianity. Yeah. It doctrine doesn't really matter. Yeah. What matters is that we're just all together. Yeah. That is not the way that Wesley yeah. used those. So well, Wesley was Wesley, using it in a very narrow sense. He was. Yeah. So, like think and let think within these boundaries. Well, and I'll and I'll give you a specific example of how he was talking in one place at least. He he talks about that in reference to Calvinistic Methodists. Yeah. Uh, was which, which was not Whitfield, him. Right? George Whitfield yeah. was one. Howell Harris was one. Selena, the Countess of Huntingdon, was one. So there were all these. There were all these very important Methodist figures who had a more Calvinistic understanding of specifically election uh, and, and, and yeah. God's sovereignty. So they they would have been people who held to some version of predestination in terms of God's election of of persons for salvation, whereas the Wesleys held a free grace point of view that God's prevenient grace rehabilitates your will to the point where you can cooperate with God's desire for your salvation. So ultimately, whether you're someone who is like a Howell Harris or a George Whitfield, or whether you're someone like a John and Charles Wesley, you still believe it's God's grace. Right. And, and you also agree on what you agree on the sacraments, you agree on the doctrine of the Trinity, you mm-hmm. agree on the dual nature of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. you agree on the on what constitutes the Bible. Mm-hmm. I mean, there. So when Wesley says matters that don't touch at the heart of our Christian understandings, we think and let think those matters that touch at the heart, the foundation of our belief system. It's a lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, so articles of religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so the, and so the only thing, you know, the think and let think has to do with, do we cooperate with God's grace? Uh-huh. You know, or do we have a more compatibilist understanding where our will is as God predetermines what our will will be? You right. know, our will is free within God's, predetermination or predestination right. of what ultimately we will choose. And so that, that you know, it's, it's not, you, you just got to read those things historically in order to understand how the phrase is being used. Yeah. And when you lift them up out of context, it's the same thing as when you lift up a single verse of the Bible right. out of context, you can, you can twist that to mean anything that you really want it to mean. And again, I just want to say that, that that's not of course to say that tolerance or ecumenical work or any of that isn't important or vital for what we're doing in 21st century Christianity. Yeah, it is, but let's just not co-opt phrases from Wesley where he obviously didn't mean that right 
and, and right. use those for our purposes. I've been thinking about the general rules a lot. And the, the general rules is that set of rules that Wesley develops in the early 1740s for the regulation of societies. And, and the general rules are that you do no harm, that you do all the good that you can, and that you attend upon the ordinances of God. And so there are three rules, and they are, they, they, they are, um, there's not a lot to them. I mean, they're, yeah. they're fairly bare bones. Intentionally so, right? Intentionally so. Now, what, yeah. what it means to do no harm, he has a whole list of that stuff. So part of do no harm would be that you um, do not sell spiritus liquors and that you don't uh, operate a, pawn, a pawnbroker shop. And the reason for that is that he, he believes that practices like that take advantage of people's mm-hmm. weaknesses. Exploitative, yeah. So when, if you're a pawnbroker, you are taking advantage of the poor who are reduced to having to pawn their goods in order to live. So if you, if you take a, a, a washerwoman and you make her pawn her wash tub and her and her um, her board, her washboard, in order to have food to eat. Well, then you know you're you're taking away her means of livelihood. Mm-hmm. So if you sell spiritus liquors, you're preying on people's addictions. So there there are all kinds of things that do no harm mean, and then do do all the good that you can. There's a whole list of things that he thinks that mean. Attend upon the ordinances of God. The ordinances are the means of grace. I mean, there are so there is a filling out of those. Yeah. But he's intending it to be the kind of regulating mechanism that helps you understand what it means to live your life as a faithful follower of Jesus and to um, respect the integrity of the community of people who are thus like minded. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, so it's the, the general rules, it's a wonderful document. It's about four pages long. Everybody should read it. At the end of it, he says, those who um, wish to join together with us will abide by these rules, okay? And if they will not, we will bear with them for a season. But after that season is over, kind of we're going to wash our hands of them. We're not going to have anything more to do with them. And that's kind of the – that's. He even may have said we um, their blood is not on our hands. I mean, it's, I mean like he, <laughs> Jeez, yeah. he's going to end it with some fairly strong statement. But what he's essentially saying is if you can't abide by the rules – We'll bear with you for a while, but if you persist in that, well, then we're going to have to part ways from you, friend. And and he doesn't mean that in a harsh way. He doesn't mean that in an intolerant way. He simply means it as a way to say, you know, Christian discipleship, it has to mean something or else it doesn't mean anything at all. Right. You know, it's the same reason why go back to my seminary days. You know, I had an attendance policy in my in my classrooms and and in that attendance policy, you know, you you had to be there a certain number of times. Um you had to turn in your work and then ultimately if you're not willing to abide by the terms of the syllabus, it doesn't mean I don't like you as a teacher. Right. It just means that you're for whatever reason, whether it's a spiritual reason or whether it's a practical reason in your life, you're not ready to be a part of this classroom environment. Right. And I can't let you be a part of this classroom environment on your own terms because if you do it on your own terms, then I got to let everybody do it on their own terms. And if everybody does it on their own terms, we're not a class anymore. Right. You yeah. know, it, it, there, there has to be a, a means by which we regulate this thing. And that means is for a classroom teacher, it's the syllabus for the course. Yeah. It's you know, for Wesley in the early Methodist movement. It was the general rules. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me that like we get that. I think most people would get that. They would understand that there are certain expectations uh, in any sort of, you know, professional setting that you're held accountable to. Um, if you're in a school setting, there's an accountability measure there. Um, when you look at early Methodism, there's accountability measures there. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow accountability to a standard that you have voluntarily undertaken um, has been seen as 
it's become oppressive and, and intolerant. Yeah. Right. When really all you're doing is saying, look, you've committed to do this. Here are the, here are the expectations. Mm-hmm. And like Wesley, like we're willing to bear with you for a while, but if this is we're, there's no reason to lock you into this because it's not doing you any good and it's not doing the organization or the class or the, the uh, company any good either. Right. Right. And so it, it's, it's weird how we, we get that, in you know kids sports teams and classroom settings and companies and professional settings but for some reason when we hear that from somebody like john wesley in the church we go oh that's just awfully mean know. you know and it's just like right. well it's like what are we doing here you know like right. um are, are we not pushing towards perfection yeah like if in wesley you know it's one of his questions to the pastors uh before he would ordain them but like i think that's a question to everybody it's like if you're not pursuing holiness of heart and life then why are you here? Yeah. Like, what's the point? Like, there's so many other things you could be doing. Right. And if you're not going to commit to that and allow us to help you in that journey. Right. Then why subject yourself to that? Right. Let's say that you are the coach of a baseball team. Okay. And you have a a group of teenagers. Who's on first? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But let's say you have a group of teenagers who are really serious about baseball. Yeah. And some of them may even uh, have the abilities to go play baseball. go play college ball okay. or some yep. of them might even get drafted out of high school and get to go play in the minors or whatever. Sure. And, um, and so you're the coach and you're responsible. You're, res- you're not responsible for the score at the end of the game, but you are responsible for getting those players as ready as possible to play the game. Right. They're going to determine the score, but you're determining their readiness. All right. And now let's say that you have a rotation of four pitchers that you work through and um, and you've got three that are really good. And you've got one kid who just doesn't want to do it on the terms that you've laid out for the team. You know, he doesn't want to show up to practice. Uh, He doesn't want to take his he doesn't want to take his bullpen sessions. You know, he doesn't um, um, when he, he wants to pitch on the days that he wants to pitch. Uh, he shows up late for the bus when y'all are getting ready to go out of town. Uh, his uniform is not clean. His uniform is dirty. I mean, at a certain point, at a certain point, you got to pull that kid aside uh-huh. and you've got to say, this is a team and we're playing baseball. We're not right. playing some other game. Right. And because we're a team, we have to play baseball under certain preset conditions Mm -hmm. and you have to both be willing to play baseball and you have to be willing to play baseball on the same terms that the rest of the team has agreed to. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to, it it doesn't mean that we don't love you. And it doesn't mean that maybe you wouldn't work out, you know, playing football or golf or something like that, but you're just not gonna be able to play on this team. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that's what Wesley in, in early Methodism was trying to do. He he was just trying to, to say that we're trying, we've got certain goals here. And for him, the goal is not inconsequential right for him the goal it's is the salvation ulti- it's the ultimate I mean, it's, goal yeah it's and it's not just salvation i mean he says i mean he in the large minutes he lays things out like he tells to his preacher he says you have one thing to do and that's to save souls therefore spend and be spent in this work mm-hmm. um, and then when he talks about what is the purpose of that god had in raising up the preachers called methodists and the answer that he gives is to reform the nation and particularly the church and to spread scriptural holiness across the land. Mm-hmm. And so when you're reading the large minutes, you have these certain things that kind of pop, they just kind of leap off the page yeah, yeah. where Wesley is saying, this is what I believe that God's desire is for, for us to even be a movement. For Memphis, yeah. One of them is to save souls, to rescue souls from the snares of the evil one. And one of them is to reform the church in which we have been placed, which is, for him was the church of England. And then one reason was to spread scriptural holiness across the land. In other words, in the language that that 
you know, that I particularly like today to sow the seeds for a revival or to sow the seeds for a great awakening in our land. That's mm-hmm. what Wesley meant by, by spreading scriptural holiness. And so there were certain things that they were trying to do and they were not inconsequential things. Right. And therefore, in order, you know, people to be on the same page, to agree to doctrine together and to agree to discipline and practice together, those were really, really important things. Right. And, and I would suggest, I would suggest that if we want to see you know, an outpouring of God's spirit today. And if we want to see the kind of renewal that, that, you know, 300 years ago was witnessed, we're going to have to be, um, that committed. We're going to have to be that deeply committed in a common way, right. Uh, to what, to what God is doing amongst us. All right, so you're talking to John Wesley on Grow First, yeah, and um, <laughs> so weren't there other topics we were going to cover today? Nah, they were of, they were inconsequential. No, yeah. I will uh, I will say this: I'm I'm going to be uh, using a couple of books. So anybody who's going to take the class or is interested in taking the class tonight. Uh, at 5.30, please come to the Family Life Center. Um, the book that I'm going to use is going to be Ken Collins' little biography called A Real Christian, which is a great little biography. It's about 150 pages of Wesley. I'm going to bring that today and share it with people so they can you can get it off of Amazon. Yeah, if you have Amazon cheap. Prime, yep. you order it today. It'll be at your house by Friday. So, yep. But I'm also going to be using Richard Heitzenrader's book, Wesley and the People Called Methodist, which is less a biography of Wesley and more a biography of early Methodism, mm-hmm. wherein... John Wesley happens to be the primary character. Right. Um, and so I'm going to be using these books to teach and, and, um, and I think it's going to be, I do think it's going to be a lot of fun and I will from time to time, I'll also share uh, some of John Wesley's sermons that I'll give people the opportunity to read uh, if they're interested in actually reading primary source material from Wesley. Yeah. I think that will be great. I think, I think that will uh, really challenge some, some conceptions of, of Wesley that people have. Uh, and it'll also be very enlightening for those who maybe don't know quite as much about John Wesley and, and the early Methodists. So, uh, Pastor Jen also has a study that she's doing. Is she doing Ruth first? She's doing Ruth, and then I think after Ruth, she's going to do Jonah. And doing Jonah. So she's doing Ruth, uh, and then uh, our director of mission and outreach, Josh Bland, will be doing Radical again. Uh-huh. Uh, he had a good response from that last semester, so he's going to try and do that again. And so uh, that starts up tonight at five thirty. Right before we uh, sign off, Andrew, you wanted to make mention of uh, a new resource that's available for people in our congregation. So why don't you do that real quick? Sure. Well, I, and I'll say this real briefly. It's called the First Church Focus. It's our annual report that we do. Um, this is the second year that we've done it. It includes all kinds of helpful information about the church budget, about our mission and method statements, about our, our lay leadership on our various committees, and then ministry updates from our major ministry areas. Uh, we looked at the um, final draft of that in our staff meeting yesterday. Lori Cree, our director of communications, has done a wonderful job yeah, with that. it's awesome. Uh, it will be posted to our church website, and we'll have hard copies available for church members as well. All right, so check that out. If you guys want to learn more about what we're doing here at First Church and what our focus is for 2020, uh, be sure and take a look at that document. I think that's going to wrap up our time together. So thank you to Pastor Andrew, to our producer, Patrick Hall, and for myself, Todd Lovell, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time on Behind the Sermon. Behind the Sermon.